The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus put before the crowds another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs that becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to, to you, O Christ. For eight weeks in a row now, and for seven more weeks yet to come, our second lesson each week has been from the book of Romans, pretty much universally regarded as St. Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work, unique among his letters, in that each of his other letters was written to a congregation that he'd pastored or uh, that he'd started or a person whom he'd pastored, whereas Romans was written to a congregation that was founded by others whom he hoped soon to visit. In his letter, he introduces himself by summarizing extensively the gospel message he has given his life to and soon enough it turns out will give up his life for. It is Paul who articulates the gospel in the language that Luther would later use to ignite the Reformation. That being the language that points to the gospel truth that we are not made right with God by working hard enough at being good enough to free ourselves from sin enough that God will therefore reward us for our good enoughness by welcoming us into God's good graces and God's eternal heaven. But rather, to use Paul's language, we are justified, made right in our relationship with God, not by works of the law, but by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, through whom we know that God in God's righteous goodness loves and as a totally free gift forgives and saves sinners. Of Romans, Luther wrote, this is truly the most important 
peace in all of the New Testament. It is well worth Christians' while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy themselves with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. For the, one, the more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Luther liked Romans. That said, you take some bites from the book of Romans and you cannot not discover, sometimes confoundedly, that it is not baby food. Romans is seriously grown-up food that requires all of your theological teeth to chew on and all of your theological digestive juices to digest without getting a very upset stomach. Personally, I love it. Personally, I'd also say I understand about half of it. Because Paul in Romans is not afraid to dive head first into deep water, the deep water of some of the deepest God struggles and God questions that there are. And if you dive in there with him, there could be time when you start to wonder if you're going to drown in there. In fact, there seems to me to be times when the water is so deep that Paul himself, as I read him, seems to be circling around in circles, wondering if he's going to be drowning in there. Except that here's what Paul does again and again. Every time, every time the water he's swimming in gets that deep, he swims back to the edge, gets out of that deep pool, and he walks over to another pool which is even deeper, for it is the pool of the unfathomable depth of God's loving grace, and he jumps in. And he welcomes us to jump in with him. Then to discover that whatever it was we were swimming around and only even drowning in, God's loving grace is way, way more than enough for us. No matter what we understand and no matter what we don't. For the third week in a row, our second reading for today is from Romans chapter 8. A chapter which, as of today, we have now read in its verse-by-verse -verse entirety. Evidence of the fact that there apparently are those who think it's a pretty important chapter. Of 15 weeks spent reading Romans 16 chapters, three of these weeks are reading Romans 8. Which I think is an important chapter too. As per my Romans norm, of course, I'd once again say I fully understand. I'm guessing about half of it. But Romans 8 is nevertheless one of my favorite, maybe even for that very reason, because it seems to me that there's so much more yet to be discovered as I spend time with it. It's one of my very favorite chapters in the Bible. It's also the very end of a five-chapter-long section in which Paul has been swimming around and, and, and sometimes almost drowning us and himself in all kinds of of topics and questions, which is maybe not why now, at the end of Romans 8, Paul steps out of that deep water once again and walks over to that other pool once again, where here, now at the end of Romans 8, he is about to take his deepest of all dives into that pool of God's unfathomably deep love and grace, which is why, as I read today's text, I, I picture him climbing a ladder to the highest diving board there is on that pool 
where I'm telling you, and we'll get to it before we're done, he is soon going to take such a spectacular dive into God's loving grace that every judge there, even the Russian judge, is going to give him a 10. But first, on his climb up to the high board, I see him and I hear him pausing on a few of the steps of the climb to tell us a few last thoughts he's thinking as he readies himself for this deepest dive of all into the depths of God's loving grace. On his first pause, I'm seeing him now, he's got one foot on the first, first step of the ladder and he looks at us and he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Understand this. It's okay if there are things you don't understand. And it's okay if not understanding, you don't even know what words a prayer would even say, even if you tried to pray. Not to worry, Paul says, for God and God's grace and God's love for you has that covered too. Through the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, God has placed within you who knows the things in your heart that are deeper than words and beyond words. And the Spirit takes those things and your heart and prays them to, gives them to the heart of God. Not with words, but rather, and the Greek word can be translated either way, the Spirit takes the deeper than words prayers of the depths of our hearts to the heart of God with sighs and groans. Too deep four words. I think of parents, probably all parents, who have known that their child was hurting. And they wanted the hurt to heal, but they didn't know what that would even look like. They did know that it was something they could not make happen, even if they did know what it would look like. So what they did with their child's hurt painful in their own hearts was to look to God in prayer for their dear one. Then to find that not only the only prayer they knew, but also the truest prayer they knew was this prayer. <sighs> the Spirit, Paul says, intercedes for us with sighs, groans even, too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, known, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Understand that verse entirely? Nope. Blessed by that verse's promise immeasurably? Absolutely. We do know, Paul goes on to say, stopping to look at us now from, I'm thinking, maybe the third step on the ladder to the high board. We do know that all things work together for good. For those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Let's be clear. 
Paul is clearly not saying that all things are good, which is good because some things surely aren't. Paul also here doesn't say that all things that happen happen because God is the one who made them happen. Something I've heard some say recently, recently, for example, about the coronavirus. God did it. I personally don't believe that one bit. I also believe that those who do believe that don't know enough to know or say that. But we do know, Paul says, we know, Paul says, that all things, perhaps things that God did will, but surely too, things that God did not will, all things, when God's love is in the mix, will work together for good according to the purposes of God, which means no matter what happens, including what happens to you, because God is God and God is love, no matter what happens, there is always good that you, by God, can get to from there. Indeed, because God is God and God is love, even when times are tough and wrongs are wrong, there may be, in fact, some good that you can get to only from there. Which means when times are tough and wrongs are wrong, a good prayer always to pray is the prayer, God, by the power of your spirit, lead me to the good place that you and I together can go from here. In the next verse, about three quarters up the way of the ladder up now, he pauses. Actually, this is kind of a little bit of a longer pause, I think, because, because, well, because of what he says. He pauses before he says, For those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom God predestined, God also called, and those whom God called, God also justified, and those whom God justified, God also glorified. Some dive from that verse into the deeply theologically murky pool called predestination. Predestinarians believe that God knows and even decides ahead of time who's going to be saved and go to heaven and who isn't. There are all kinds of twists and versions on that, which I think are interesting only to a few and actually in the end helpful Uh, to even fewer. So I'm not going to do a deep dive into that murky pool, but I do want to say a few things. Paul doesn't here actually say that God predestined, that is to say ahead of time selected, anybody for heaven or for hell. He does say that God, those whom God foreknew. And by the way, is there anybody not on that list So anyone God didn't foreknow? Those whom God foreknew, Paul says, God predestined, not for heaven or hell, but rather, quote, to be conformed to the image of his Son. In Genesis 1, it says that humans were created in the image of God. But that image is an image we, all of us, turned from, preferring instead to imagine ourselves as our own gods, and paradise was lost, 
Judging by all of my news feeds, it hasn't yet been refound. Those whom God foreknew, Paul says, God predestined not, at least Paul doesn't say, God predestined people not for heaven or hell, but rather, quote, to be conformed to the image of his Son. These are words in which I hear Paul saying that from the beginning, the minute paradise was lost and the image of God was turned from, and who knows, maybe even before that, God knew already that God in Christ would reach to have its creation sighing its sighs and groans of sin back again. Back with God again. Back in God's arms again. Conformed to the image of God and God's Son again. And in using the word predestined for all of that, I want to say that at least part of what Paul is saying here is that being conformed to the image of Christ is your destiny. And therefore, life, whether it is here and now or forever, won't be full with the fullness it is meant to be full with until you are caught up by, caught up into that destiny that is yours in this life and the next. Beyond that, when it comes to the word predestination, I don't really have anything else to say. Paul then, having now reached the top of the ladder, now to stand atop that highest diving board, Paul now looks our way to say what I'm sure a lot of us are already thinking. That being, what then are we to say about all these things? And since we've already concluded we don't know what else to say about all these things, Paul, up there on that very high board, now starts preaching. I say, he says, this. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us with him everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he goes right on to make what sounds like a random turn, but in fact it's a very not random reality check. As quoting from the book of Psalms, he says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Most scholars agree that Paul did get to Rome, but only under house arrest. In Rome, still under arrest, he did meet and minister to many. And then, as were many others, Paul was executed for his proclamation that not Caesar, but Jesus Christ is Lord. That verse, seemingly randomly inserted into his sermon from the high board, shows us that that death, one, would not surprise him, two, nor would it frighten him. 
And so walking now to the end of the board, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, he says. And now I see him looking you in the eye as he says, for I am convinced. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced. And now he starts jumping, gathering himself up on the end of the board as he continues. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. And this is when, with a final bounce of all, the highest one of all, he jumps into a stunningly beautiful dive, saying as he dives, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, my friends, is what a perfect high dive looks and sounds like when it is to a dive into the depth of the deepest thing that exists, that being the depth of God's love and God's grace for the world and for you. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor trials in the present, nor any trial to come, neither height, nor depth, nor all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God poured out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the refrain from hymn 622, the hymn of the day, written by Marty Haugen, the, the, the one who wrote Hold an Evening Prayer, and also uh, now the Feast Liturgy. The verses are the verses of the entirety of Romans 8, the chorus, the refrain of that deep dive into God's love.